my name is Flick Beckett and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picturehouse podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. Sam's on holiday this week, so I'm here in his place for the October 2022 edition of the show. On this episode, I'll be joined by our guest film critics, Anna Smith and Peter Bradshaw, to discuss a handful of the best new films coming to Picturehouse Cinemas this month. I'll be here to guide you through the episode, but we're all here to listen to Anna and Peter's opinions on the best new films launching in October. And we'll be joined by two very special guests. Gina Prince Bythewood, director of The Woman King, and David O. Russell, director of Amsterdam. Peter Bradshaw is the chief film critic at The Guardian, and Anna Smith is a freelance writer, one you may see in our very own Picturehouse Recommends and host of the Girls on Film podcast. Right, without further ado, let's talk about the films. First up, next, our guest critics, Anna Smith and Peter Bradshaw, give their thoughts on The Woman King. When it rains, our ancestors weep for the pain we have felt in the dark hulls of ships bound for distant shores. When the wind blows, our ancestors push us to march into battle against those who enslave us. So Anna, how did you respond to The Woman King? Uh, with an almighty roar, Peter. <laughs> I was very happy yeah. that this film exists, number one, because it's so rare, if not unheard of, to have a big budget epic that's very good, directed by a woman and stars a whole host of amazing black women with action scenes and heart and a proper budget. This is a blockbuster, really. Uh, so it's directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, stars the amazing Viola Davis, who is yeah. just tremendous as the leader of this kind of Amazonian tribe, very loosely based on true events. And this tribe protect their territory. And Lashana Lynch also, I thought, was tremendous in this, an awards-worthy performance, really incredible cast, and also a lot of heart in a character called Nawi, who comes in as this very young, naive, new recruit and watches everything. So we, she's a kind of entry-level heroine. So we see everything this tribe is doing in 19th century West Africa. And it really is a gripping watch, a moving watch. It was a proper tearjerker for me on several counts, this film, partly because of what's happening on screen, but partly again, because, you know, I speak obviously as, as a feminist and it is very exciting to see this finally happening, this kind of representation on screen. It's been doing well in America. It's getting people into the cinemas. I hope the same happens here because this is definitely a crowd-pleasing epic, but with what is sadly a novelty, the fact that it stars black women. Yeah, I would say it certainly got the four amazingly charismatic faces and presences on screen. Obviously, Viola Davis is just a billion volts every time she comes on. Uh, Lashana Lynch, again, terrific. Sheila Atim, who I've seen in other things, she's terrific in it as well. I really knew nothing at all about Tusu Mabedu, who plays Nawi, but she, again, great. There's something very educational, actually, about this film in that it addresses something which I haven't seen addressed before as to how exactly slavery works on the ground in a way. It, the, the film shows that the colonizers, the Brazilian slaver colonizers had a vested interest in creating the market forces for slavery by encouraging and insidiously creating tribal warfare 
because the two combatant participants in tribal warfare will take prisoners, which effectively will be capital for them that they can sell off to the European colonialists. And I thought that actually was a very interesting point being made by the movie. And I think there's something insidious about the way in which the imperial invader will promote factional division in order to create the market forces for slavery. And there is something very interesting about that. It was educational on lots of levels. I agree with that about the slavery, but obviously for me, seeing the bond between the women and you know something again we hadn't seen much on screen before the fact that women took up arms and fought there together in a very brutal way because this is quite a violent film we are not used to seeing that happen either with women fighting and i must say it got me more much as i'm not a big fan of violence got me much more involved in the battle scenes because i generally get quite bored in battle scenes and one of the reasons is because i can't relate to them yeah you know obviously hopefully none of us have been to battle but you know what i mean (laughs) Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before, so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Next, Eleanor Lezik spoke with Gina Prince-Bythewood, legendary director of Love and Basketball, about her historical epic, The Woman King, starring Viola Davis, released on October the 7th. Hi, Gina, how are you? Hey, good, how are you? I'm okay. So first of all, I was really curious because um, I kind of went into the film blind and I didn't know it was a true story at all. Mm-hmm. And I sort of got the impression from watching the film, obviously, but I still had to go check, you know, I was like, really, Did this happened? So I was wondering how you first came across the true story of the Dahomey and the female army, the Agogier. Um, the first time I'd even heard about these warriors was, you know, once Black Panther came out, I had read that the Dora Milaje was based on true women, but I had no clue about the depths of what the story was until I got the script and it blew me away because I was you know it's my first reading I'm the first audience and I'm learning about this incredible culture and these incredible women who really existed and then knowing I was going to do this this film research is such a huge part of my process certainly when you're doing a historical epic it's got to be part of your process because you should start with truth and authenticity so it was exciting to dive into the research and a deep dive. I'm getting consultants and academics and historians from Benin, descendants of these women who had just incredible stories and history told from the right way from those who lived it. So to be able to infuse this film with all of that, I mean, that was exciting. I mean, I don't know, but I imagine maybe there were elements and things that you just, you know, there was no way to be sure about. Uh, what the reality was and I was wondering how much creative license but also just having to you know invent things that you weren't sure about how much of that played into the film I mean it's it's not a documentary but for me as much truth that you can put in you do so for us our characters are created but put into an absolutely real world everything that was going on historically the societal norms the economic norms All of that was true. The palace, it's an exact replica of the actual palace. The clothes, the oil that they put on their bodies, the fact that they sharpened their nails, that was all based on truth. The weaponry, we have exact replicas of the machetes that they used. They were works of art and they have incredible design on them. So 
that's the fun, the world building. We're taking an audience into a world that they don't know about. So putting all that truth within it is an exciting thing. And I think it's the right thing to do. And then, so there's not just the sort of, you know, recreating a world to make it, you know, at least, you know, look like it, it looks, but there's also, I thought the film was really, really interesting and ambitious in the way it also sort of found a way in quite a short, you know, story. It brings so many issues together, mm-hmm. but not just juxtaposing them, you know, sort of awkwardly. It shows how they're all connected, like women's liberation, obviously, women's power, but also obviously racism, uh, violence, but also, you know, on a more psychological level, trauma. Yeah. And I was wondering, yeah, how did you all work all of this out with the writers, I guess, but also just, you know, sort of putting this film together that has so many layers to it? You know, I love historical epics and I love big films, but the thing that connected me most in me wanting to tell the story were the personal stories within it, the intimacy within this film. I feel like you don't often get that level of depth of intimacy in this type of genre. So for me, I knew that I wanted the character moments, the intimate moments to be a seismic as the big set pieces. If it all works in concert, then they feed each other and you care about what's happening in these big battles because you care about the characters and you care about these intimate moments because you know that there are these big stakes for these characters. So it was less intimidating or difficult, more so it was exciting to be able to tell these personal stories within this type of genre. I also thought the way the film addressed the slave trade as a quite complex system at the time where it's not something we necessarily think about that much, but obviously people who were in Africa, you know, empires, they participated in it sometimes. And I thought the film presents this as impossible conundrum Mm -hmm. for these people. I was wondering, yeah, like, were there any challenges in sort of trying to talk about the slave trade in this nuanced way when in retrospect, and obviously at the time as well, there are characters in the film who are opposed to it just on principle immediately. But it's very hard to see, to even discuss, it feels, the slave trade in this nuanced way. So how to bring that into this film that's also very entertaining, mm-hmm. it seems like quite a challenge. Again, it started with, we knew we would tell the truth. It's just a global reality. Basically, every culture in, engaged in slavery in some ways, the Greeks, the Romans, the Aztecs, what became different is when Europeans came and changed it into something that was commerce-based and race-based as opposed to prisoners of war. So in setting the film at this time period, we did it specifically because it was at this time when literally half the country wanted to abolish it and just rely on palm oil and the other half wanted to keep it because of the wealth that it brought. So it was a way that we were able to use the agogia as that voice of the people who wanted it abolished. And I've been really happy to hear that people are understanding it and getting the nuances because it is a hugely complicated thing. And so often people don't even know about this aspect of it, but also it's inherent. It's a a story of triumph because people are trying to abolish something that was evil. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as I mentioned, it's also somehow, while it does all of these things, the film is also really fun (laughs) and uh, really entertaining. And particularly, uh, I was really struck by the action sequences in part because it's just exciting to see women do their stuff <laughs> they're not just you know hitting people they like fully murder people <laughs> so I was wondering yeah how did you work on that aspect of the film and also just the preparation of the actors because some of these actors they didn't all get to do this before especially I would say Valad 
Davis. I don't think I've seen her do this before. <laughs> so yeah, how did you work on that with them? These are warriors and this is war. So I knew my approach. I wanted it to feel raw and visceral and real. These are real women. So there was no way I was going to approach it any other way. This was not going to feel like superheroes. This was not going to be wire work of them flying in crazy ways that didn't feel natural. So it started there, but I also wanted to celebrate their athleticism and skill. These women legit beat men. They were legit the elite fighting force of this country. And so it started with Danny Hernandez, my incredible fight and stunt coordinator. We talked about character and story within this fighting style. What was that going to feel like? The hand-to-hand and machete, close quarter. What does that feel like for a woman to be able to do that? How do we focus on character? The way Azogi fights, uh, Lashana Lynch is tied to you know her trauma. So she wants to decimate any person in front of her. Where Tuso, who plays Nawi, she's 5'4". So what can her style be? And that was based on speed and and smarts where Viola is super strong and brutally efficient. And so that was how we approached her. But all of that doesn't mean anything if I had to cut around stunt doubles. You want performance inside action scenes. That's what makes great action. If you believe it, if it's story-driven, if it's character-driven. And so it was the same speech I gave every single actor, including Viola, you are going to do your own fighting and stunts, but this is what it's going to take. It is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. It's part of the rehearsal process. And it also built the incredible sisterhood that you feel up on screen because they went through, they call it trauma bonding. I, <laughs> I call it hard work, but it was months before we started shooting. And then they continued to train all the way through the shoot. And it was six days a week twice a day in the mornings, hour and a half of weight training. And then in the afternoon, three and a half to four hours of martial arts training, fight choreography, weapons training, running. That was really important. Boxing. And then also they had to learn dance training on top of that. And that dancing in the the film, like that was months of training in itself. But then it shows up and you get to see this is really Lashana doing that. This is really Sheila and Tuso and uh, Viola doing it but it was the best way to tell the story and embody these women in the right way yeah it does show (laughs) i have to say also i think what's really interesting about the film so you tell this very specific story that most people don't know about but you also bring together like a very international cast to tell this story so i was wondering how did you get everyone to be on the same page just on that level that type of casting was intentional i wanted to bring women from all over the diaspora to come together as a collective to tell the story you know, in the world, there are oftentimes divisions that are talked about. I wanted to obliterate them and just have all these women come together to tell the story of their ancestors together as Black women. And that doesn't diminish the different cultures. That's a beauty and you can celebrate that, but you can also see each other. We all came from the same place. You know, we all have the story to tell and let's tell the story of us in a really beautiful collective way. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Now we bring back our guest critics, Anna and Peter, to discuss Amsterdam. We're in a bit of a predicament. The man was killed. Please take that we did it. We need to clear our names. Oh, that's something. So, Peter, what do you think of Amsterdam? I thought it was very interesting. I was a little bit disconcerted by it and intrigued by it. I think a lot of people have 
kind of taken against it in a way because the director, David O. Russell's brand identity in the film marketplace is a bit divisive these days. People think that, oh my God, it's going to be just too much. It's not going to work. What's going on? I don't quite know how to describe it, really. It's like a screwball, mystery, weirdo adventure. And I think there are some things in it that don't work, mainly because it's sort of tonally weird and tonally sombre for reasons which aren't really revealed until the very end, which possibly should just quickly recapitulate what it's about. It's about effectively three veterans of the First World War who are living in New York in the early 1930s. Christian Bale plays a disabled ex-soldier called Bert, who is now a doctor and is now supplying pain medication to his fellow ex-soldiers on a pro bono basis. His pal Harold, played by John David Washington, who's always, I think, really good, yeah. is now a lawyer. And they are both more than a little in love with the volunteer nurse that they met during the First World War. That's Valerie, who is played by Margot Robbie, who was not merely a nurse, but a kind of experimentalist, surrealist, Dadaist artist who saved up all the shrapnel she dug out of their bodies to create bizarre artworks. And she is to come back into their lives at the time when they realise that they are being drawn into a very sinister and creepy conspiracy to murder and to conspiracy to take part in what amounts to a fascist coup against the democratically elected American presidential government of Franklin D. Roosevelt. So it's like a kind of Donald Trump style putsch that is happening in the 1930s. And it is based on a real case, a case that is very little known. I didn't know about it before I saw this movie. I had to go away and Google it. And I think that is kind of a bad sign in a way when you have to Google something after a film. But it's about something very serious in a way. It's about the fascist threat to American democracy, which was serious in the 1930s, because of course there was an insurgent proto-fascist movement in the United States as there was in Europe. And it's very, very serious right now. But the movie doesn't quite tip its hand fully to say, this is what this is about. So you're always aware of a weird seriousness underneath all the wacky hijinks. And I wasn't sure whether the movie quite assimilates and absorbs all the difficult things that it set itself to do. But having said that, I thought it was interesting. What did you think? Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I went in with sort of as few expectations as possible. And I was surprised to read later that it was considered kind of a comedy because I found it likely amusing in parts. But as you say, I didn't find it laugh out loud funny on more than a few occasions. No. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what territory it was inhabiting in. That said, even at two hours and 15 minutes, I could happily watch these actors doing what they were doing. Although Christian Bale seemed to be doing Al Pacino. Did you notice that? Yes, he was. He was in Al Pacino. Man. Completely. <laughs> he was a bit, yeah. Well, once you've noticed that, it's hard to get that out of your head. Sorry, listeners. And it seemed like he just decided that was what he was going to do. Yes, it, it, it deals with serious subject matter, but it's very... I think it's quite an entertaining film. And I actually disagree, as you say, with some of the people that have really taken against it, because I like to try to separate the art from the artist. Yeah. And I do think if you want a, a fun big screen experience with a, an awards-worthy cast and an interesting true story, then you've got it. I didn't love all the casting. Um, what did you think of Mike Myers as a Brit? Because I know when he does the comedy Brit thing, that's fine. But here we were meant to believe he actually is one. And I wasn't yeah. sure about that. It's almost a microcosm of the whole film. You see, we know that Mike Myers could be hilarious as a, an outrageous Austin Powers Brit. 
and he was almost doing his thing, but told to take it down from a 10 to like a four or a five. Although I did find it very funny when for no real reason at all, he did the sand dance, you know, that kind of wacky sand dance routine, which is I think a musical routine from the 50s or the 40s in Britain. I really like Mike Myers. I always think that he's like a sort of lost hero of movie comedy, that he kind of faded out because he did his thing, his sort of Wayne's World thing and Austin Powers thing 20, 25 years ago, and then just sort of disappeared. And he never quite had a second or a third act in his career. And whenever he pops up in something like this, I always think, wow, is this going to be the moment that Mike Myers comes into his own? And I don't think he totally does, but I, I think he's an intriguing stage, uh, rather, well, stage screen presence. I really like Rami Malek in this, actually, as Valerie's silky voiced brother, who does this weird silky little tone all the time. And I thought it was very funny. And also he's married to Anya Taylor-Joy and those two are, are the most alien looking like couple in, in an they incredibly are, glamorous yeah. way. And I thought that was fabulous. To sum up, I mean, I think I basically enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's a good old tablespoon full of Marmite and you've got to swallow it all down at once and decide whether or not you like it. There's something a bit inelegant and weird and clunky and lumpy about it, but it's not boring. David O. Russell intended it to look and sound like that. Nothing about it is accidental and it has a point to it in its way. And as you rightly say, it's always very well acted by A-game, A-lister performers. Next on this very exciting episode of The Love of Cinema, Armin Warman chats with none other than David O. Russell, writer and director of Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle, about his latest highly anticipated comedy murder mystery, Amsterdam. Welcome to the Pitchhouse Cinema podcast, David O. Russell. How are you? I'm happy. I'm exhilarated. <laughs> Thank you for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. Uh, we're here to talk about Amsterdam. You just had your premiere last night. And Amsterdam, I believe the genesis of this movie started with a conversation you had with Christian Bell in the diner five years ago. Can you still recall anything about that conversation? It was actually five or more, almost six years of conversations. Oh, wow. So for a writer or a filmmaker, it's wonderful when you have an actor that you're friends and you like to laugh and you like to be emotional together, you like to talk. You created the character in American Hustle, which began in Christian's backyard. A writer, better than sitting at home alone, I have to get up and get out two or three times a week and go meet him. And we, it was a good thing for us both to do as artists to go out and talk. And I meant I had to come in with new material for him, which got me to work and got me to leave my house and not be alone writing, which after 25 years, you're happy to do it by having conversations that you record. And so it was an ongoing conversation. And then Margot began a conversation and I visited her on the set of Suicide Squad, and that conversation went on for probably two or three years, and the same with many of the other actors. We always want to create a character that we love and the world that we love, that we find wildly fascinating and new, so that every actor and every character, especially Christian, is in a way that you've never seen them before. That's my wish as a movie goer, and that's my wish as a movie maker. It started with like a photograph of a big ballroom in New York uh, back maybe 80 years ago. We'd look at these photographs and you'd say, wait a minute, look at these two people who are good friends. They don't look like each other. How did they become such good friends? And they're all at one club together, or a couple. I wanna hear their story 
maybe we're going to create that story of these friends and these lovers because many of these stories are not recorded. I love that. You mentioned some of the cast there. The cast for this movie is insane. When you were writing the movie, did you have all these people in mind for the role or was it only sort of after you had the script, it was like, oh, I think this person might be good? I think it's a mixture. Most of my screenplays and stories begin with conversations. Mm -hmm. Chris Rock and I have been talking casually for 17 years or more. So I knew I wanted to work with Chris. I knew Mike Myers became a friend who I wanted to work with. This inspires me to then write for them and to find a place for them. And then it challenges me to make it worthy of them and worthy of the story. It gives me a goal as a, as a writer to, to then elevate the whole movie. We want to sort of play music together. We want to try to do something together. And then I talk to them about it. Does this feel good to you? Does this feel right to you? Are you interested? Are you available? And let's keep talking. So it's based on that instinctive connection, I would say. Amazing. A film was made many times over in the writing, in the filming, in post. Is there a part of that process that you enjoy more than the others? It's hard to say. You can't do any. They're all essential. It's like asking mm. if you like your heart better than your lungs. <laughs> <laughs> or, or do you like your feet better than your eyes? I mean, we need them all. So I'd have to say the process of creating the magic is probably after writing my favorite. And then the editing is where you really, 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 with Jay Cassidy, our editor, you really get to bring it together. That's why I want to make a lot of choices. We always have a script on the set, but then I want to try other things. Let's try different ways. So mm -hmm. we have choices in the edit room. And it's boiling those down, especially with so many characters, to make it the mosaic that flows with cinematic propulsion that is emotional and funny and everybody has their place. That takes a lot of work. And that's in the edit room. That's really, really interesting because, yeah, I have been watching some of the cast interviews and they said in a very complimentary way that they didn't know what was going to happen each day on set <laughs> day to day. It was really interesting. I imagine that you have a better idea when it comes to that, but how do you balance that preparedness with unpredictability? And were there any especially good improvisational moments that stuck out to you in the moment that you immediately knew that you were going to keep playing as soon as you saw it? Well, I would, I would often say it's not, it's, it's never strictly improvisation. Sometimes it is, but I would say very rarely, meaning I have a script. I wrote 14 drafts of this script until we picked the one that could be scheduled and budgeted for 50 days. I think what they mean is they don't know what's going to happen when they get into the scene with the other actors. They don't know which direction we're going to go. They know they need to be saturated and comfortable in their character. Mm. That's what I ask of them. Be so saturated in it that you're mobile, that you can move in your character. And if we decide to go this way, you can be Valerie Vose or Harold Woodman or Dr. Berenson and move as that person. That's when we try other things, when we try other ways to do the scene. Or maybe we try other drafts of the script. Or maybe we come up with new lines. And those are the things that they don't know is going to happen. I just heard a story from Miles Teller, who made Top Gun with Tom Cruise, who said that Tom told him that on any movie he's made, this has been the process, with one exception, which was A Few Good Men by Aaron Sorkin, because that had been a play 
a very successful mm -hmm. play on Broadway for many years. So that was established. But every other movie, Tom, including Top Gun, is still in a process with Stanley Kubrick, whoever the director is, trying to figure out what's best. And let's do what we wrote, but let's also ask if there's something else we should do. We're here, we're in costume, we've got the, we've got the camera, why, mm -hmm. why not try it a few ways? And when an actor says, well, why? I say, maybe it's because I know what I want the film to feel like and be, and I know what the story is, and I know the direction it's going. However, I can't say which emotional vibe right now is exactly correct. Maybe you know. Maybe you're smarter than me. <laughs> Maybe you're smarter than me, right? But I, 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 I need choices in the edit room, and it will protect mm -hmm. us all. And I welcome you to come to the edit room and see with me. And very often I say, thank goodness you did it this way, the way that you wanted. You know, so you, you, I think those choices are important. No, 100%. Final question. Amsterdam will be playing in UK cinema soon. What is it that you love about the cinema experience? Well, this picture, I've never had a picture I'm on in IMAX. And this picture, I saw it last night. The premiere was at Leicester Square. And across the street, we went into a theater that had IMAX, and it blew my mind. And Chivo shot the film, uh, who's an epic cinematographer who shot The Revenant and also shot Birdman and Gravity. You know, he's a visionary, and he used a larger negative than normal which allowed for a larger image and a larger immersive experience. So my intention is always to pull people into a world that they've never been in before, to have fun with characters they've never met before, that they'll want to talk about and see again, and a lot more to talk about and to experience, to go, that was a hell of a ride. I want to talk about it and I want to see it again because there's a lot there. That's what going to the movies always was for me. And then I come out and I kind of want to be the characters a little bit. Or I want to think about the characters. You start acting like the characters. And it means that I was fully focused and immersed. I wasn't distracted by doing other things in my house, like eating and stuff like that. Although I suppose you can eat at the cinema. I'm still just a popcorn and candy guy. I don't necessarily want to have a hamburger. But you can do whatever you want at the cinema. And my kids like to have hamburgers at the cinema. Mm -hmm. Love that. And uh, David Russell, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Iman. Anna and Peter now discuss The Banshees of Inisherin, the latest film from writer-director Martin McDonough of Three Billboards and In Bruges, released on Friday the 21st of October. The film stars Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, who won Best Actor at Venice for his performance and Best Screenplay for Martin McDonough. If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. I just don't like you no more. Have you been rowing? Have you been rowing? Have I been rowing? Well, you are rowing. It does look like we're rowing. So, Anna, what did you make of the Banshees of Inner Shirin? I really enjoyed this film. Obviously a huge fan of the director, Martin McDonough, huge fan of In Bruges, huge fan of seeing 
Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson played the two different sides of Martin McDonough in some ways, which I always feel that they're doing in his films. And in this one in particular, it felt like a sort of internal dialogue, the slightly sort of simple guy and the complex arty guy and the, the sort of love-hate relationship that they have with each other. So Brendan Gleeson, as you know, plays a guy living on a, a remote island and one day he decides to end his friendship with his daily drinking buddy, played by Colin Farrell. And Patrick Colin Farrell is absolutely bereft and confused. The reasons given are, are sort of simple, but really interesting in that he just says, says, well, you know, I haven't got long left in this life. I may as well devote it to art rather than pointlessly drinking away my time with you in the park, <laughs> which is really harsh, but it but sort of summarises some kind of internal dialogue a lot of us might have as we get older and start to question our friendships. What did you think? I thought exactly the same with you. I loved Colin Farrell and Brenda Gleeson. It's almost like a kind of King Kong versus Godzilla confrontation of colossal Irish acting. The difference in a way with In Bruges is that they were the two hitmen in In Bruges, but they were both subordinate to a third figure played by Ray Fiennes. Here there is no third figure. It's just them facing off with each other. Colin Farrell's feelings being terribly hurt. And it raises a couple of interesting questions. The falling out between the two of them in a way is a parable of the Irish Civil War. And I understand that. But in a way, the film is more poignant and more disturbing. If you don't read it as a metaphor, you just read it as what happens if you want to break up with someone. I mean, if you break up with your spouse, that's called a divorce or a, or a separation. And however painful that is, everybody understands what's happening. But the breakup of a friendship is much more rare. There is no widely established framework for doing it. If you do it, you feel like you're back in primary school in a way. You feel like you're kind of six years old and you've decided to your best friend, I hate you. I don't, I don't want to be your friend anymore. And is there a way you can do that as an adult? No, there really isn't. And I think that the movie was very, very interesting because it explored that male friendship. What do you do if you just decide, no, this guy, he comes calling for me to go to the pub every day. I'm sick of him. I'm bored with him. Go away. And it's incredibly hurtful and incredibly upsetting. He doesn't want to talk through his feelings. He doesn't want to tell him really why. That's it. I just, I haven't got long. I may only have a few years to live. I want to <laughs> not spend it with you. Yeah. <laughs> the, the awful thing is, it's it's not simply that he wants to, he wants to be an artist and and work on this plaintive air called the Banshees of Inisherin. <laughs> and you just think, well, is that worth it? I don't know. Is is that is that so talented and wonderful that you're causing so much hurt? I'd probably rather have a pint with Colin Farrell, but you know. Well. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. It's really interesting because, and, and you said male friendship, and I think it probably is particularly pronounced in male friendships because I think you guys are not given the emotional equipment yeah. that we are in some ways to deal with friendships. Like no. girls are encouraged to be friends and, and you know, to navigate that a bit better. Yeah. But at the same time, I related to it as someone, you know, that you, you reach a stage in life and you feel closer to some people than others and you have to make difficult decisions about, you know, your life's busier and who do you spend your time with, even though our lives are very different to the ones we see in this film. And I just thought that was really poignant. But I think an another thing worth mentioning is this all sounds fairly serious. It's a really funny film, it right? It is funny. It's it hilarious. Is, it is funny, although I was very interested in, in an interview that Martin O'Donnell gave to The Observer, gave to Miranda Sawyer in The Observer recently, and he said that he intended it at some level to be a sad film. And it it was, I mean, it is funny in in a kind of Samuel Beckett way. It reminded me of what would happen if Vladimir and Estragon just sat there on the stage and, what, and Vladimir said to Estragon, you know, what? I'm sick of you. 
I don't care if Godot ever turns up at all. Go away, I'm sick of you. And it's a bit like Samuel Beckett. And of course, it's very like J.M. Singh, John Millington Singh, in that uh, McDonough has Singh's sense of comedy and pain coexist all the time. They are the anode and the cathode of his worldview and his creative procedure. But it is sad as well. And McDonald spoke very interestingly recently about the fact that nobody wants to make sad films anymore. People are scared of sadness. And this film isn't scared of sadness. It feels theatrical and simple, but I think brilliant. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. In the last of this month's reviews, we hear what our guest critics make of Park Chan-wook's decision to leave that bagged him the best director at Cannes earlier this year. Best known for his Vengeance trilogy, Park Chan-wook is one of South Korea's most fated talents and his film is in cinemas from Friday the 21st of October. So Peter's decision to leave has had great critical acclaim, of course, did very well in Cannes. What did you think of it? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I saw this in Cannes. I wasn't quite sure exactly where we were going with it. I knew that Park Chan-wook, of course, famously he started as the master of straight-up contemporary gonzo violence. But about five or six years ago, he had this fascinating pivot when he adapted the Sarah Waters novel, Fingersmith, and made it The Handmaiden. And he showed that he could make these amazingly accomplished and stylish Hitchcockian period suspense thrillers. And in a way, even though he's back to a contemporary setting, this is in that same vein. It's basically a noir movie, a noir romance. I remember when I saw it first, I thought, this is a kind of Hitchcockian film that could be made by somebody who'd never seen a Hitchcock film in their lives, but that they had a kind of intuitive sense of how to do it. Because it's Hitchcockian in the sense that it will remind you of Alfred Hitchcock for various reasons that I won't go into too much because of fear of spoilers. But it's not one of those Hitchcockian films that are made by people who want to tip you the wink and do little postmodern twerks and little touches to show you that they are very, very cinephilic and knowledgeable about Alfred Hitchcock. It's like a kind of natural Hitchcockian style. And I thought it was absolutely great. And particularly the turn from the star Tang Wei, who I remember in Ang Lee's film, Lust Caution. And uh, I really haven't seen much of her since then. That was back in 2007. And she plays this woman who fascinates an investigating police officer who is looking into the death of her husband, whose shattered body is found at the bottom of a well-known climbing rock. And he realizes either he's fallen or he's been pushed or his wife has, his widow rather, has something to do with it. And of course, the more he looks into it, the more he sort of starts falling for her. And the more we, the audience, start to think, wow, is she manipulating him? Are we being manipulated? Is the director manipulating us in tandem with this manipulation? Yeah. 
and it looks so gorgeous. It just feels like you're being driven in a brand new BMW. Oh, it just, it has that new car smell, this film. It's just gorgeous. I, I thought it was great. I really want to see it again. It's been a little while since I've seen it now, because it was back in May that I saw it. You're right. I love that analogy. There's something very, very slick about this filmmaking. And you mentioned Hitchcock, and I have a rather more sort of lowbrow example. But of course, in itself, Basic Instinct was inspired by Hitchcock. And there's, yeah. in, sort of plot-wise, there's a lot about Basic Instinct here. But, you know, just the fact that this filmmaker is one of the best working today, I think. Yeah. And Park Chan Wook and, and, and he does something immensely inventive with it. The way he plays with the uncertainty of both the characters and the audience and their expectations is so smart and it definitely stands up to repeated viewing. And I think it's a great one actually to go to with your partner or with friends or, or indeed on your own. But if you've got a chance, as we're doing now, to discuss it after the film, it would be fascinating. I reckon you could go for hours. I think so, especially as is everybody's crazy for South Korea these days. This is something else which is going to ratchet up our addiction to all things South Korea because it's so intelligent. In a way, you have to watch it again because there are so many things in it which the director very boldly doesn't give it to you all on a plate. He doesn't cross the T's and dot the I's straight away. You're always slightly off balance, thinking, what's going on right now? I don't understand. Oh, I get it now. I get it. I get it. And then there's something else that gets yeah. gets you off balance. And then you go, oh, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. So in a way, it would be great to see it again. So you can revisit your initial confusion and intriguement, if I can put it like that, and just to savor it again, because it's so, it's so lush. Definitely. And he, he really plays with the ambiguity brilliantly. Yeah. And it's a haunting film as well. I mean, it definitely haunted me for a while. And if, like me, you like to play detective, I mean, most people do, right? Then it's a great film for that. Yeah. It's entertaining and clever, but still accessible, which is, is a tough combination to get right. Yeah, and it's got a gorgeous performance, the leading lady performance in Tang Wei. I mean, that's like watching, you know, the young Joan Crawford or Betty Davis in the, in the golden age of Hollywood. That's just so stylish and yeah. commanding and, and intriguing and, and disturbing. And finally, as is tradition, whilst we have Peter and Anna in the house, we wanted to ask what else they'd recommend on the big screen this month and see what they're looking forward to later in the year. So, Peter, what is still in cinemas that you would recommend? Well, not that I want to be disloyal to the seventh art of the cinema, but what really occurs to me is the live stream of the theatre, not well, the recorded live stream of theatre, actually, is the theatre production, Prima Facie, starring Jodie Comer as the young barrister. I have seen it on stage and it's one of those times you think, wow, I just want everybody to see this because it's so good. And the great thing about streaming theatrical events on the cinema screen is that it gives these wonderful theatrical performances a new lease of life and a new constituency. So I would say rush, rush, rush to the cinema to see the live stream of Prima Facie starring Jodie Comer because it is absolutely brilliant. I haven't seen that, so I'm going to check that out. Thank you do, for that. Do. One that I would pick out is Girls, 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 which oh, yeah. is a Finnish coming of age sort of comedy drama. It's kind of like a slightly more serious 
book smart, you know, um, straight friend, gay friend, navigating the party scene. One has a kind of romance, but it's just really funny, really well written, beautifully performed. Um, I hosted a QA and a with it with with Girls on Film and the audience absolutely loved it and all stayed and asked the director loads of questions. It's one of those films that there's lots to discuss afterwards. Um, So girls, 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 definitely check that out if you get a chance. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Now, Anna, what are you looking forward to in the way of coming attractions? What is coming up in the cinema that you want to go to? Well, in a few weeks' time, there is a wonderful film called Call Jane, which I'm looking forward to seeing again. This stars Elizabeth Banks in the the sort of roughly true story of women who sort of activists who helped each other in the 60s and 70s to get illegal abortions safely because a lot of women were basically dying trying. It sounds like very strange territory for a comedy drama, but it is actually quite light in tone, very accessible, very enjoyable, and it makes a serious point that could not be more topical. So Call Jane. Right. The one I would say is After Sun by Charlotte Wells. This is a debut movie from a quite staggeringly talented young filmmaker, Charlotte Wells. It's coming out in cinemas generally in November. It's also cropping up this week and next week at the London Film Festival. And it stars Paul Mescal, of course, from Normal People, who plays a divorced dad who takes his nine-year-old daughter on holiday And it seems to be a kind of farewell to her because rather poignantly, it looks like she's possibly going to be spending more time with her mum than with her dad. And so this holiday that they're going on together is kind of like a farewell, but it's not a sort of weeping and wailing tragedy. It's very low key. It's very good humoured. It's a film whose beautifully observed details just accumulate and reverberate throughout the film. And it's about a lovely, lovely, understated performance from Paul Mescal and a lovely, understated performance from the nine-year-old newcomer called Frankie Corio, who plays the daughter called Soph. And it is such a lovely film. It reminds me of the young Lucretia Martel, the Argentinian filmmaker Lucretia Martel, in that it's all about the mood and the moment. It's beautifully captured in the most unhurried way by Charlotte Wells's camera. And I'm very excited by this new filmmaker. She's just come out of nowhere to me. I really knew nothing about her at all. And there's something very cinematic about what she's doing. She has a real visual sense, a real audio sense as well. It's sort of not about the script. It's not about lines of dialogue. It's about the visual experience and the visual immersion. This is a terrific film. I think everybody should go and see it. I agree. After Sun is tremendous. And I haven't met a single critic that didn't love it. So I can't wait to see what audiences think. I hope they'll agree with us because I think she's so talented. So, Peter, obviously everyone knows where to find your work and that's in The Guardian. But yeah. uh, is there any other thing, exciting things we can look forward to? Well, in my humble way, I'm a bit of a YouTuber. I have a weekly vlog. I enjoy doing it. And you can just search Peter Bradshaw or just type in Peter Bradshaw Guardian into the search field. My Twitter and my Instagram handle are both Peter Bradshaw one. I'm not on TikTok. I, actually, I am on TikTok, but I haven't plucked up the courage to make a video yet. And also, I still my book out called The Films That Made Me, which is a collection of my reviews for The Guardian. That's still on sale. I'd love it if people read that. And a very good book it is too. 
What are you up to, Anna? What what things have you got for us? Well, Girls on Film is going really well, the podcast. Um, oh, we've actually just done a special Girls, 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 um, so you can listen to that now. And you know yourself, Peter, because you've, you're one of the few men that's been on Girls on Film. It was a special episode about James Bond, didn't we? So yeah, people we can did. seek that out. We did. That's a, it's a superb podcast. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. And we're actually going to Mallorca F- Film Festival, Evolution Mallorca, at the end of October wow, for a live, for a live show. So that'll be really fun. <laughs> that sounds great. Why have I not been invited to that? That's amazing. <laughs> you're just not female enough for that one, oh, I'm afraid, no, Peter. Blimey, Sorry. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, we're back into live events and, and they all go on. To the podcast so if you if you're not lucky enough to be in mallorca you can listen to the podcast so you can find us on obviously apple all you know spotify amazon or all your, your major podcast platforms you can find the girls the girls on film site through my own social media on twitter i'm at anna smith journo as in journalist and on instagram at anna smith film critic and i believe i have a member of staff setting up a tiktok account for girls on film as I speak. So watch this space on the TikTok front, finally getting with it there. You can also find my writing in Deadline, Hollywood and Metro and lots of other places. Right, right. That brings us to the end of the show. A huge thank you to Anna Smith and Peter Bradshaw for being guest critics. Do check out Peter's reviews in The Guardian every Friday and Anna on the Girls on Film podcast. Thank you also to film critics Eleanor Lizick and Armin Warman for conducting our interviews this month and to Gina Prince-Bythewood and David O. Russell for their time. I've been your host, Flick Beckett. You can hear more of me on this very podcast feed, so please make sure you're subscribed. We also have interviews and reviews and all sorts on our Picture House YouTube, Facebook and Insta pages. So please do check out these pages too and subscribe so you're always up to date. The show was produced by Kobe Omanaka from Stripped Media for Picture House Cinemas. And the podcast is proudly supported by Kier Powering Independent Cinemas. If you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'll be back in a month, but until then, thanks for listening all the way to the end and enjoy the cinema this month. There's loads on and we look forward to seeing you really soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.